Wow. Thank you, Allison. God is incredible. I, I don't even have words. Um, he's so good. We're, you just, man, when you meet somebody, you just have no idea what their story is. And we are all walking, talking miracles. And the Lord, he's, he's so good. I, I don't know what else to say. Um, man, hallelujah. Let's go. That just fired me up. Let's go. Um, if you would, turn your Bibles. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, as you turn there, Tommy and his family, they're not here with us this morning. He is over at Grace Life Beachside, uh, which is a church that Grace Life Deltona planted five years ago. So they're celebrating their five-year anniversary. Pastor Jeff Eckert and Tommy were the founding pastors here. An opportunity came up in year three. So we are eight years old. In year three of Grace Life Deltona, Jeff was able to plant another church over in Ormond Beach. And so they are now celebrating their five-year anniversary. So Jeff invited Tommy over to preach there and celebrate with them. So we are more than happy to let Tommy go be with uh, that church that he helped um, start and that the Lord obviously carried through. They're growing. They're thriving. So that's where Tommy and Sarah and the Clayton family is this morning. Um, but for us here, we will be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read it for us. And then I will pray, and, and we're going to dive right in. So 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but we're giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your redemption and the miracles you work 
in our, in our souls, in our hearts, in our bodies. You are never not working. So God, open our eyes to see who you are. Give us an even clearer picture of who you are and of, of what you're up to in this world. And Lord, show us how you invite us into that. Lord, open our ears to hear your word this morning. Open our eyes to see it and please soften our hearts to accept it, to be changed and transformed by it so that we would leave here more obedient, more surrendered to you, more fueled to carry out your work. God, we belong to you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being right here with us, Lord. May all of this be for your honor and for your glory. Amen. So 2 Corinthians, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote along with Timothy, who was kind of his, his protege, his, his co-worker. And Paul, um, to be honest, has a, quite a long and even a complicated relationship with this church at the city of Corinth. So he actually, we know of four letters in total he wrote to this church. Uh, we only have two that were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he had a long dialogue back and forth with this church. And if you read 1 Corinthians, you'll see they, I mean, this church was just like any church. They had a lot of things that they struggled with, right? They weren't perfect. No church is perfect. And so Paul is correcting all these things. He's trying to encourage them and equip them. Thankfully, they, they repent, they, they grow, they learn from it. They're doing well. And then he gets another report, which causes the uh, occasion for him to write 2 Corinthians. So what's happening is at the church in Corinth, they had some false teachers whispering in the ears of that church that Paul uh, was not uh, quite as accomplished. He wasn't, they were questioning his credentials. They were saying, look, if Paul really is sent by God, sent by the Holy Spirit, why does he suffer so much, right? This guy's in shipwrecks. This guy keeps getting arrested and beaten it looks more like he's cursed by God, not like he's blessed by God. Not only that, when he's here with you in Corinth, this Paul, he doesn't speak very eloquently. He's not powerful. He's not, he's not good at rhetoric like we are. So if he was really inspired by the Holy Spirit, don't you think he would talk better? Don't you think he would just be a little bit more persuasive, a little, carry a, a better demeanor about him? So these believers in Corinth are hearing all this stuff. And so Paul writes this letter to defend his ministry. He's showing that this, the Holy Spirit is empowering me through all that suffering. He's using my weakness to show his power. And we'll see in a couple of verses in this passage, he talks about there are people who look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what's on the inside. The Lord, he does things differently. And that's what Paul's about. So this book, and specifically this passage, it all comes down to identity and purpose. So Paul is saying, this is my identity. This is me and Timothy. This is our purpose. And so by extension, we have all been, if, if you believe in Jesus, if, if you have been saved, you have been adopted into that family. And so by extension, we're going to see our identity and our purpose in this passage. So if you stop and, and ask yourself, what is, what is my job as a Christian. Like, what did I sign up for? It, 
Let's say when the Lord saved you, if, you know, like when you get a new job, your first day on the new job, uh, they'll hand you a sheet of paper, and you probably would have gone over it in the interview process, but it'll have a title, and then, and then it'll have a job description, right? They're going to make it clear. This is, this is who you are here. This is what you're going to do. So when the Lord hands you that sheet of paper, what does it say? What's your title, and what's your job description? That's what we're going to look at. Not only, not only that, we're not just going to look at us. We're going to look at the Lord himself. We're going to look at his identity, and we're going we're to look at his purpose in this world. So that's where we're going, and, and here's how we'll do it. We're going to jump in to verse 17. We're going to read that again. We're going to kind of set the stage. We're going to look at God, his identity, his purpose, and then we'll work our way back through the text to see how we can best fill out our job description. Sound like a plan? Let's do this. Let's read verse 17 through 19 again in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That phrase, all this is from God, is beautiful. This whole thing starts with God. God is a reconciler. That's his identity. That's who he is. He's the reconciler. That's his identity. That's what he's doing. And before we get too far into this, we need to define that term, reconcile. What does that mean? What are we talking about? God is a reconciler, the ministry of reconciliation. So it's actually a financial term, and it talks about balancing accounts, making things right between two parties, to reconcile, to, to transfer uh, things of of not, not necessarily of equal value, but to make a transfer so that the accounts are balanced, right? To reconcile, to make things right. So the way the Lord does this, check this out in verse 21. This is a very popular, well-quoted verse, and for good reason. This, this is the transaction that takes place. Verse 21, how does God reconcile? This is what it means. For our sake... He made him, that is, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. This is talking about a transaction. It's, it's actually a double transfer. So when Jesus, God himself, come down in flesh, when he dies on the cross, right, not only does he take on all the debt, all the sin and brokenness that was in our account, he takes that onto his account. He doesn't just bring our account back to zero. He doesn't leave us at zero, right? He actually not only takes on all of our debt and sin, then he gives us his righteousness. So our account balance is not put to zero, and then we have to figure the rest out. He puts our account balance to a trillion. Like he gives us, he makes us the righteousness of God. It's that two-way transfer. And God is the one who starts this mission to reconcile the world, to make the world right again, 
like Allison was saying, one day we can all look forward to that day when everything is made right, when the world is fully reconciled. Because God is the source of all things that are good, beautiful, redemptive, glorious. And so he invites all of us broken and sinful people, he invites us back to himself. And, and he commits to healing and restoring this broken place that we call home. Because he originally created humanity to actually rule and reign this world on his behalf as his image. Right? That's the job he gave Adam and Eve. He says, you are my image. Go have dominion over this place. But we all know the story, right? They, did they do that perfectly? Did they obey and submit on his behalf and rule? No, then, just like all of us, we decide to depart from him, we sin, we rebel against him, and that's how we end up in this broken mess we find ourselves in. So we choose sin instead of obedience, but God decides to rescue us from that, to rescue us from ourselves, from that sin. So, he wants to usher in restoration, usher in a new creation, reconcile the world. So the question is, how does he start that? What does he do? How does he start? Because in verse 17, Paul says, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. What is he talking about? What what new has come? Where does God start? He starts with Jesus. In In 1 Corinthians, Paul's other letter to this church, he talks about when Jesus rose back from the dead, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the one starting to break in this future reality of restoration. Jesus is the first fruits of that. If you want to know what a reconciled world looks like, what a reconciled human looks like, look at the resurrected Jesus. He's breaking it in. He's the first fruits of that. So then the question becomes, how do we get in on this? How do I get to experience that? How do I get to experience that restoration, the reconciliation? Well, this passage says, through Christ, God reconciled us to himself. And he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's the promise. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation. That's your identity. If you are believing in Jesus, if you've been transferred into his kingdom, adopted by God, you are a new creation. That's your identity, right? That's your title. You are redeemed, made right, made new, bought, cleansed, forgiven, loved. That's who you are now. And the most beautiful part is nothing can take that away from you. That's yours. That's who you are. But here's where, man, God's plan just seems so crazy because it doesn't stop there. And if you just take a step back and look at this plan, you might tilt your head a little bit and just say, really? If I was in your place, I don't think I would use that plan. Because, check this out. To reconcile the world, not only does God stoop down to, to reach out and rescue us, not only did he step off of his throne and t- he takes on the griminess of human flesh, he stepped into the mess that we've made of this world. Not only does he come down to live a sinless life of struggling and suffering, Not only did he be tortured and killed and murdered, experience death, go through that, raise back from life, raise back from death to life, 
to defeat sin and death. Not only does he do all of that, this is the craziest part. He uses us to then carry out this mission. Like, that's insane to me. The same us who were so rebellious, so broken, so sinful. He's like, I'm going to stoop down to rescue you, and then I'm going to use you to reconcile the world. Is that not like, that just blows my mind. Like, why would you do that? This is a job only you can do, Lord. Why are you using me? But that's his plan. That's how he decides to do this. But he gives us new life, right? We're not broken and pathetic anymore, right? He fills us with the power of his Holy Spirit. He gives us the new life and the power we need. He gives us this new purpose. He gives us the ministry of reconciliation, and he entrusts to us the message. This is our job description, all right? If you are a Christian, this is your job description. As a church, right, we say we are the insiders who exist for the outsiders, as a church, as families, as individuals, this is our job, to reconcile the world. So we are reconciled reconcilers, right? When God hands you that sheet, your first day on the job, title, reconciled. Job description, reconciler. That's it. That's who we are. That's what we do. Sounds like a pretty tall task, right? Reconcile the world. You're like, I can't even get my kids to church on time. How am I supposed to reconcile the world? Hey, I'm the first one raising my hand. Recon like, how do we do this? This is a tall task. How are we supposed to carry out a work that only God can do? So we're going to work our way through this passage and follow a simple outline that can hopefully, hopefully help us see what we need to carry out this task, and then to identify the hurdles that get in our way of carrying this out. So as we work through, just ask yourself, which of these things is getting in my way of being a reconciler? And before we jump in, the, the best, clearest way to be a reconciler for God is to verbally share the good news, the gospel with other people. Okay, that's the, the very specific job the Lord gives to us to share, not, not only to live it out, we need to live out these truths, and we need to verbally proclaim and share, right? Jesus gives us the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teach them all that I've commanded you. Because all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth, therefore, we go. So, ask yourself as we walk through, which one of these things, it could be more than one, which one is getting in my way of being a reconciler for God? So first, heart. We're going to look at the heart. Are you compelled to share the gospel? Are you compelled? What, what controls your heart? Who do you fear? These are some questions we're going we're gonna to answer. Before we do, we're going to read verses 10 through 15 again. To pick up on this, Paul is talking about things that control us, where our heart is at as we go about this mission. Verse 10, he lays out the reality. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, all of us, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. And this is where he starts talking about those false teachers. He says, For we are not commending ourselves to you again, but we're giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So who do you fear? What are you afraid of? Who, what is controlling your heart? Verse 10 shows us the reality that all people will face that judgment seat one day. We cannot go about our daily lives ignoring that reality. Every single person you interact with will face that one day. Therefore, knowing that truth, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Because here's the thing, we don't want people to face that day without hearing about Jesus. We don't want anybody to face that day without the righteousness of God covering them because of what Jesus has done. So knowing that reality, we persuade others. Because God is just and he's perfect and holy, he can't let our sin just go unpunished, just sweep it under the rug. If he did that, he would not be good. So we need to have an appropriate and healthy fear of God. That phrase, fear of the Lord, it's, it's crucial in the Bible. It says it's the beginning of wisdom. So it's important we understand what that looks like because God, he's the most, the most powerful, holy, terrifying, unapproachable, powerful being you could ever imagine. It goes beyond anything we can imagine. That is the Lord. If we're honest with ourselves, I know this is true for me. I like to, sometimes I'm tempted to downplay certain aspects of God's character, right? Like, I don't want to talk about the wrath or the holiness or the, the justice, the jealousy. It just, it kind of rubs our modern sensibilities the wrong way. But we can't just pick and choose the characters, the characteristics of God. We have to let God be God. We can't try to squeeze him into a box and we have to strike a balance because, yes, he is holy and so set apart and above and beyond anything, yet he steps down into this world to transform us and make us holy. Like, yes, God is unapproachable. On our own, we could never reach him. We, we would never be worthy to ever approach him. But he has made himself approachable through the cross. Right? He, he makes, he stoops down, he makes himself approachable. So we have to strike a balance and we can't overly focus on one side or the other. But we do know this, that the, the driving force is that God is love. He is a reconciler. And his love is so powerful, he can't be unjust. He can't be unholy. So it all goes together. I was reading uh, a book I just finished that that was pretty incredible. And this author, his name's Indy Wilson, he, he talks about 
Christians and how we often are just tempted to try to make God something we want him to be. He says this, the thing about Christians is that we usually want to pick one aspect of God's personality and then just stick with that. Why do Christians think of purity, holiness, and even divinity as something with big eyes and soft fur, like a kitten? Why do we so often ignore the beautiful in exchange for the cute? God is not cute, right? <laughs> He's beautiful. He, he is not cute like a kitten. He's beautiful like a thunderstorm, right? There's a difference. Cute is something we can control, and it's right there, and it's in its place. God is something we absolutely could never control, but he's beautiful. It reminds me of, uh, if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, these, the kids are about to meet Aslan, which is the lion. Who, he's the figure who represents God in this story. So the kids are on their way to meet the lion, Aslan, for the first time. And they're walking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they find out this, this is a lion, so they start getting nervous. And they, the kids ask, is he tame? Because they're scared. They're about to meet a lion. And they say, is he tame? And Mr. Beaver answers, he's not tame, but he is good. That's God. He is not tame. <laughs> we cannot fit him in our perfect, pretty little box, but he is good. And so, therefore, he deserves a healthy, reverent fear. We ought to take him seriously. Knowing the fear of the Lord, it means we take him seriously. We don't just write him off. We don't ignore him. And we know this is the beginning of wisdom. Here's... Maybe a helpful illustration. We'll see. So my younger brother, he's 16. So he just, he, he got his license. He's got himself a car. And he's also got himself a girlfriend, okay? So, so let's say Micah wants to take her on a date. He drives to her house to pick her up, walks inside. And her, her dad is there, right? And he says, now, Micah, you're going to drive safe, right? Micah says, yes, sir, Absolutely. And the dad says, all right, I got my eye on you. Just drive safe, be back by 8.30, no later than 8.30. Micah says, yes, sir, all right. So they drive off, driving down the road. You know, Micah's probably, my little brother's probably, I don't know, going five or six over, nothing crazy. But he's focused on his girlfriend, right? They're just talking, getting ready for this restaurant, whatever. Let's say a couple minutes down the road, he looks in the rear view, Starts look, the car gets closer and closer, and he realizes, oh, that's her dad, right? So what's going to happen? He's going to then be more aware of his safety. He's going to be more aware. He's going to be 10 and 2, right? He's not going 5 over anymore. He's, let's go right to the speed limit, maybe 1 under, just to be safe. Let's put it on cruise control. Like, I'm, I'm not messing this up. So it, obviously the illustration falls short, but in the same way, Sometimes when we hear the phrase fear of the Lord, the word fear, we start thinking of like horror movies or something and screaming. That's not the idea. It's, it's the idea that God is real and he's there and that, that changes and affects the way we do everything, right? It's, it's taking God seriously, the fear of the Lord. So the question is who or what do you fear? What controls your heart? Are you compelled 
who share the gospel, are you controlled by the fear and the love of the Lord or by fear of other people? One time I was sharing with a pastor who was mentoring me, and I was, honestly, I was just confused. Because I was sharing with them, man, I've had opportunities to share the gospel recently, but then for some reason when the moment comes, there's just this hesitation, and I don't know what's going on. I just like kind of back off and don't share. And he goes, it's fear. And I go, yeah, but, and I try to like explain it away, but, and he goes, no, it's fear. It's fear. You're fearing other people. He wasn't like being mean about it. He was just trying to help me understand what was happening. Like I was fearing those individuals more than I was fearing the God of the universe. So are you being controlled by the love of Christ? Because the perfect love of Christ, it casts out all fear of man. That's the power that it has. So let's ask the Lord for more of his love, for more of his control to compel our hearts so that when we go around, we know we have a heart for other people to share the good news, to be the reconcilers of this world. And then in verse 15, it says, for he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So who are you living for? What is controlling and compelling your heart? All right, so that's the first thing we have to look at. Our heart, are you compelled? Second is our head. Are you conscious? And I don't mean just like physically conscious. I know some of you might not be conscious out there. That's okay. Take your nap. You're good. What I mean is, are you aware? Like when you go Monday through Saturday in your day-to-day life, are you aware of what is most real about everybody around you? Are you conscious, conscious of who other people are? Let's read verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So how do you look at people? Are you looking at people based on outward appearance? About looking at them, how they can help you and serve you? How do you look at other people? Is it according to the flesh, like these false teachers were saying? Paul's outward appearances are so weak and lame. But Paul is saying that's not what God is worried about. He looks at the inside. He uses our weaknesses for his power. So how do you look at your friends, your family, your coworkers? There's a quote by C.S. Lewis. He might be the most quotable person ever. And you you may have heard this quote before, but it's just too good not to share in this context. He's talking about how we ought to look at other human beings that we interact with. He says, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you could ever talk to, that person may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or they will become a horror and a corruption such as if you now meet it, if at all, it would only be in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, 
nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life to ours is as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, with whom we work, we marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So how do you look at other people? Are they boring? In the way? Annoying? Unimportant? Overly important? Ignorant? Arrogant? Dangerous? What if we looked at everybody not according to the flesh, but according to their eternal reality? That they will either spend enjoying and loving God forever in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, or they will spend forever separated from God, suffering for their sins, under his judgment. Not only that, what if we looked at every single person, everybody, as potential teammates in the reconciliation of the world? Because nobody can outsend the grace of God. Nobody's too far gone. Nobody has lost their chance. Every single person you talk to and interact with is a prime candidate for reconciliation. Everybody. We regard no one according to the flesh. There's a quote, I don't remember where I heard this, but it's so good. It says, the gospel came to you on its way to somebody else. It doesn't end with you. (laughs) It came to you on its way to somebody else. It's like if you've ever played a game of tag, not like normal tag where when you tag somebody, they're it, and then it switches from you to them, but a game, I think it's called group tag. So one person starts out as it, and then when they tag somebody, now you're both it, and they also become on the it team. And now their job is to go tag other people, and it just keeps spreading and growing and growing. That's, that's who we are. That's our job. When you get tagged, man, go run and try to tag as many people as you can. That's, that's the mission we're on. It doesn't end with you. Like, we are meant to now be reconcilers. Like, yes, we've been reconciled. That's our title. Job description, go reconcile more. And this is, this is where we have to admit something that we can't save anybody, right? Our job is not to change hearts because we cannot do that. Only the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit can resurrect a dead heart. Our job is to be fully surrendered to the Lord and willing and ready to share his good news with anybody and everybody who's willing to listen. That's how we tag people. We share, right? The results are up to the Lord. All we can do is be totally abandoned to him, surrendered to him, saying, I'm, I'm willing. Lord, bring somebody today, and I'll share the gospel with them. That's our, that is our job. And here's the thing. Sometimes we, I know for me, I view that sharing as so intimidating, and it can be so nerve-wracking, and what, what are they going to think of me, and all this stuff. But check this out. In verse 19, what, are we at, what is the thing we're sharing with people? Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. How does he do that? Not counting their trespasses against them. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. That's the best news anybody could ever hear. Hey, there's a God who's righteous and holy and amazing, and he's not going to count anything you've done against you. So repent and believe in Jesus. That's incredible news. But it's so easy for us in our cultural moment, to be so insecure about our Christian beliefs, right? Our, our morals and our ethics from the Bible, they're so outdated and they're so repressive 
and lame and they're just archaic and they're harmful, right? That's the message we hear. Or it's so naive and so primal to believe in something supernatural. Like we've moved on. That's, that's what we hear from the world. But the reality is what we have to share is the greatest news anybody could ever hear. And we have all been created to be in relationship with God. So as much as we suppress the truth, as Romans says, God has the power to open up hearts to realize this is what I've been waiting for my entire life. God can open eyes, transform hearts, and save people. So we serve a God who's ready. So we just have to be conscious that the people we interact with every single day, their reality is eternal, and they need to hear the good news that we have. So heart, are you compelled? Head, are you conscious? Conscious, lastly, is our mouth. Are you capable? This is a legitimate question. Are you able to clearly and passionately communicate the good news to somebody? Let's read the last two verses, verses 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are the Lord's, the King's representatives, his ambassadors. And to implore people to let God make his appeal through us, that requires us to open our mouth and to speak. So are you capable? Right? This, and this is where our responsibility as elders and pastors of this church, we cannot change your heart. We can't control your thoughts, control your mind. We can try to influence those things. But what we can do is equip you to, to make sure that this last one is not an excuse. To equip you so that you know, man, if the opportunity arises, I, I know ex- something I can say to communicate the good news. So we're just going to finish with two simple, helpful ways that you can actually do this tomorrow or Tuesday or when, whenever an opportunity arises. Hey, I know what to say. I know how to do this. And these two things I'll share, obviously they're not the only ways to share the good news. So if you if you know, if you are capable already and you like, this is how I share the gospel, man, keep going. Stick with it. But if you have the heart, you are compelled, you are conscious, but you're just like, I don't know what to say. I don't know where to start. Hopefully these are, are helpful things, helpful tools for you to put in the tool belt. The first one, 15-second testimony, okay? Essentially, you take what Allison just shared and you just crunch that thing down to 15 seconds. Yeah. It's, but it's really helpful. So all of us, if we are Christians, we all have the same, if we really boil it down, it's the same testimony. It all looks different how it played out. But here's, the, here's the, a simple wording you can use. There was a time in my life when I was a sinner, and I was heading towards death and judgment. But then Jesus saved me. And now... I have life. I have eternal life in relationship with him. That's 15 seconds. No more than 15 seconds, right? But then you can personalize it a little bit. Here's just a couple of examples. I used to live for other people's approval 
But after Jesus changed my heart, I know I already have his approval. Or I used to live for the thrills of this life and this world. But when Jesus saved me, he started teaching me the way of faithful and patient obedience. Or I used to rely on substance abuse to even make it through the day. But after Jesus rescued me, I can rely on his presence and his promises to hold me up. That's just a simple, personal way to enter into that gospel conversation, to navigate a conversation. And then if, the, if people have an interest, they say, what do you mean by that? What does that look like? And then you can start sharing details and sharing how the Lord did that in your life, right? So 15-second testimony. And then this next tool has been really helpful for me. It's, uh, it's called the Three Circles. The North American Mission Board uses this. I find it really cool. It's something you can just jot on a napkin in a, in a restaurant if you're having lunch or coffee with somebody. It's just a beautiful, boiled-down way of sharing the essence of the good news, the story of the Bible, what Jesus came to do. So we start with God's design. When God created the world, it was beautiful and it was good. And everything was right. Everything was in its proper place. He created us to flourish and to enjoy him. That was his design for this world. But we don't find ourselves in that, do we? The way the world is currently, it's not going according to God's original design. So what happened? How did we get here? Well, sin came into the world. We departed from God's design. We went away from his commands. We disobeyed. We sinned. And now we've ended up in brokenness. So the world we see around us, people are hurting. People are sinful. You get stabbed in the back. You, you can never quite find fulfillment in anything. This world is broken. And so we try all these different ways to get out of brokenness because nobody wants to just sit there. So we try to get out, whether it's through committing ourselves to work and trying to be successful, whether it's through relationships, whether it's through numbing the pain, whatever. We try to get out of brokenness. But all those ways, they just lead right back in. So how do we get out? How do we get back to God's design? How do we get out of brokenness? The only way out is through the gospel. So when we repent of our sin and we believe in the gospel, that's how the Lord can rescue us. And the gospel is a simple truth that, the, that God himself came down as a man in Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect, sinless life that we can never live. He never departed from God's design. Then he died on a cross in our place. He took on our brokenness. He took on our sin. And then he raised again from the dead to defeat those enemies forever. And now if we repent and believe in the gospel, then we can be, begin recovering from our brokenness and pursuing God's design. Simple, I don't know, that took what, maybe three minutes to share? And it sticks with you. There's actually an app. You can download an app that will go through this. It's called, either look up three circles or I think it, it's life on mission. And bam, there's a tool right there. And it'll walk you through step by step. So now, mouth, are you capable? No longer an excuse, all right? We know the good news. We have ways we can share this with other people. So, final thought. When we talk about evangelism, sharing the gospel, when we talk about being reconcilers, 
I mean, if you want to make a room of Christians feel guilty, talk about evangelism, right? I mean, none of us are living up to this job title, this job description that we have, right? But there's a reason, I think, verse 21 comes last. Because the Lord gives us our job title. He made him to be no sin. I mean, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's your title, and it's there, and it's not going away. So if the Spirit is convicting you this morning, like, man, I just don't have a heart that's compelled, or I'm just not, I'm so distracted, I'm not conscious, I'm not thinking about this reality. If the Spirit is convicting, let him work, let him move, but don't get stuck there. Let, let that godly grief and repentance lead you back to him. For every look in here, we take ten looks to the cross, Right? So we don't, as believers, we don't have to wallow in our failure. We can confess it, we own up to it, and we repent of it. And the Lord says, I'm still here. You're still mine. Let's go. Let's go reconcile the world. And so with this three circles, the best question to ask when you share with somebody is, what circle do you find yourself in? If you had to put yourself somewhere on this map, where would you be? So I'll, I'll leave you guys with that question. If you do not know Jesus, where would you put yourself on here? If you find yourself in brokenness, the invitation is wide open. Repent and believe the gospel, and he will rescue you. And for us who are believers, I, my prayer is just that we would have hearts that are compelled, minds that are conscious and aware, and mouths that are capable of sharing the good news. And through the power of God alone, He's going to reconcile the world, and he's going to use us to do it. It's incredible. So I pray we can uh, be excited to join him in that as we leave today. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the good news that you don't count our trespasses against us. It is mind-blowing, Lord, that your love pursues us when we dig ourselves a hole, when we run away from you, when we spit in your face, you run after us, Lord. And your kindness is what leads us to repentance, Father. So may we all just be assured and encouraged that we are reconciled, that you have made us right. And that title is not going away because you're the one who holds it there, Lord. And I pray that with that title, we will go live out our job to be reconcilers. Letting your message make its way through us, that we will just be channels of your grace towards other people. Imploring people on your behalf to be reconciled to you. God, thank you for even inviting us into this mission. It's, it sounds crazy that you would ask us to do this. But this is your perfect plan. So empower us with your spirit, with the new life you give us to go and make disciples, Lord. God, I pray grace life, we would exist for the outsiders to invite people in that anybody can get in on this. God, we need your help to do this, Lord. So please supply us with more and more of you and of your grace, Father. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. 
Amen.